Hi, and welcome to Humans Aren't Robots, brought to you by Digital Noir, the podcast where we tackle the human side of tech and business. I'm your host, Sam Davies, and on this episode, we sat down with local Adelaide boy, Devin Mancuso, who's now living in California and is a senior interaction designer at Google. I was lucky enough to sit down with him in the tent at South Start late last year and have a really good chat with him about so many different topics. I really enjoyed speaking to Devin. He told me about how he got into the design space, recounting the exact moment he really fell in love with it while he was studying computer science and business management, and the struggles of teaching himself user experience at a time when there really wasn't a lot of information available around the space. We jumped in and talked about the importance of having great user experience in apps, how people make decisions before designers were really a thing. I actually delved back and started talking about, you know, what UX, what the role of a UX designer was way back in the day. And I got a really good answer to what human-centered design means to, to him. He also told us about how design strategy became something he wanted to pursue and where we get a chance to do this at Google. He also paints a picture of the energy and stress that people in Silicon Valley feel and how exhausting it can be, touching on the importance of aligning yourself with what you want to do and who you want to be. I love seeing Adelaide kids grow up and go and conquer the world. So it was amazing to speak to Devin. And this is a really great listen for any designers out there. So without further ado, let's dive straight in with Devin. Hey, I'm actually looking forward to that. Did not uh, hit record. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I I can do a better answer to that now. I'll I'll jump in with that though. Um, Mm -hmm. I I literally had just been talking to Devin for about three minutes and hadn't hadn't hit record. So it is the end of the day here at South Start. Devin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much again. Good to be here. It's all professionalism around Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So um, we'll try and retrace those steps. So you're from Adelaide originally. That's right. Um, now over in the States, but let's go back a bit. So where did you start out um, here in Adelaide? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was a Hills kid in Teacher Gully. Nice. Mm-hmm. And then I studied um, at university. I was at UniSA. And so I did a double degree uh, in computer science and business management. Cool. So I was really, I was big into IT, into computers. And to be fair, what I really wanted to do is actually work in cybersecurity and be a penetration tester. You know, you get hired to hack the websites. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty cool job. Uh, and my dad kind of said, well, like maybe try the computer thing, but can you throw in like a business degree? Because that seems like a safe bet in case the whole computer thing didn't work out. Evidently it did. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, I did a couple years there at UniSA, and that was split between kind of Morrison Lakes campus and the city campus. Okay. And then the opportunity came up to actually do a master's program there in business information systems. Hmm. And that was actually really an interesting program. I should check if that's still running, but it was a program based around placement as opposed to, you know, just pure theory. And so you kind of had to complete a number of internships, I guess you would call them, or placements throughout the course. Yeah, cool. And it was really quite a, a very valuable and rewarding experience because you went straight into the workforce. Like, they put you into these businesses who were just willing to let you work on something straight away. Where did you go into? Uh, that's a good question. So one of them was SA Water, actually. Well, okay. Yeah, and so, I mean, I hadn't really... I mean, I was just really passionate about design and computers, um, even back then. And I think I was working on an intranet project, like redesign an cool. intranet page. I mean, what, something what very What year are we talking here? Like, what, what year? Was, what year? Ten years ago, yeah, I think, cool. or something like that. Yeah. No, more, more, more. But uh, for me, it was a really interesting taste. And, and honestly, it was, I think, what I really got present to was I was doing a lot of business analyst work. Mm-hmm. And I'd kind of been told, you know, you've done computers, you've done business, you're going to be the the translator between the two. That was kind of how that double degree was pitched to me. Sure. And when I got into the business role, I was kind of like, I don't really like this. Like, mm. it's a lot of spreadsheets. It's a lot of documents. I kind of thought we'd be 
programming something or designing something cool, you know. Giant PRL documents. Yeah, totally. And so I was kind of bummed out. And so I uh, actually ended up deciding to, I decided I had made a mistake in that career choice because I wasn't a particularly strong programmer back then. And I didn't love the BA stuff. And so um, I actually went to a careers fair with some friends on a bit of a, like, I'll just hang out, you know. And funnily enough, I ran into Deloitte Digital, yeah, okay. the accounting firm. Mm. And they kind of said, oh, like, you should come chat to us. And I said, I don't want to work for an accounting firm. That sounds <laughs> even worse than what I was doing. And they said, no, no, like, what are you interested in? I said, I'm interested in this thing called UX design. It's mm. all, all the rage in the, in the U.S., you know. And they said, we have that. We have one of the biggest UX teams in Australia. And I'm hmm. like, why, though? You're an accounting firm. And uh, they said, just come and chat with us, you know. And so, you know, I did... Um, and I met with the director there, and we kind of just had a chat about innovation and tech and where it was headed. And I kind of felt like the, the things I was reading online and the forums I was in and the blogs and stuff, like they, what they were speaking about, I couldn't find uh, in a lot of the placements I had done and things like that. Mm. And that was the first time I think I'd met someone that was speaking the same language, and I was just like, oh, I got to be here. You know, cool. I got to do that. So I ended up doing my final placement with Deloitte Digital in Adelaide and then actually went on to work there for a couple of years. Mm. And that was when, I, you know, I want to say it was... Maybe UX had been a term in the US, I don't remember, but back then it was like a new term. Yeah, are we still talking 10 years ago? Because that would be... And then we're, now we're kind of like nine years ago. Yeah. Years ago. So okay. it was, maybe it was a little earlier than that. But uh, I do remember at the time, like, we had a, a gentleman on the team who still to this day is my design mentor. Mm. And he was a, he'd done kind of product design and architecture work. And we had someone that had come from government that was going to do content writing. We had an ethnographer from Oklahoma. Hmm. And so, and we were just kind of like, Hey, let's, let's figure this thing out. And it was, it was like kind of like the wild west back then. It was pretty cool. That is. I'm, I'm interested how you like, so in computer science and, and business, but where did design fit into that for, for you? Like what, and what kind of design were you interested in? Oh, Oh, I, I actually very clearly remember the day. So I was in this master's program, and uh, uh, I wanted to do an elective on psychology. And the timetables didn't work out, whatever. I wanted to graduate. So they said, can you just pick something from this list? And I said, sure. And I picked Human Factors of Computing hmm. uh, with Dr. Stuart von Itzenstein, I think it was his name, in, in UniSA. Fantastic lecturer. And I remember just sitting there in the first lecture, we talked about the Subaru car and the hmm. design of the dashboard. Okay. And why the buttons were where they were sure. and how they got to that. And uh, honestly, I remember kind of looking around. People were kind of a little checked out. Like, and I was just like, Are you, this is it. Mm. Like, this is cool. Like, why have we never been kind of exposed to this thinking? And yeah, someone had to make a decision about where the button went. Yeah. And they must have based it on something. And heck, I was like, I, for that moment, I was like, this is what I want to do. I really had one of those, like, you see the light and you're like, oh, wow, I'm really excited about this. Hmm. And so that was kind of, you know, and, and as I mentioned before, I, I, but I wasn't hearing the things I learned in that course and then that you know, inspired me to go online and start reading about this stuff. I couldn't find those same conversations replicated elsewhere. And yeah. so I think uh, he as a lecturer actually gave me a textbook and said, this is the textbook you need to go like read this cover to cover. And so I, you know, whilst I was formally trained in computer science and business management, uh, the design was a lot of self-teaching, Yeah, sure. Uh, which was very challenging. And, you know, I battled the imposter syndrome as you do for many, many years after that, because mm. I kind of felt like, oh, if I'd have just gone to art school, you know, like I would have had the missing, missing ingredient. But it, it probably wouldn't have given you so that I mean because that is quite totally, a quite totally. a niche there anyway. So I I did half a um, visual communications degree mm, and then left and mm. I left because this was late nineties and I was you know I was super into Photoshop and mm-hmm. you know early well not early but you know dig, digital and yeah. sort of earlier days um, and I went to you know an old school graphic design college and it was you know, like cutting out you know uh, bits of paper and painting them and color mixing and I was like I could just do this on Photoshop mm-hmm. and now you know. 20 years later, I look back and think, you know, I, I missed the beat, sort of not, 
applying myself more and I actually learned a lot more than I think and I you know I, I find myself telling designers now like you know you need to think about visual hierarchy you need to think about mm-hmm. all these things fundamentals that, yeah, yeah fundamentals which, which are applicable across the board so mm-hmm. there probably is some, some good things you can pick up yeah and I mean now now that I actually teach a lot of, of kind of junior designers and we talk about this because people are coming to design increasingly from a wide background of, of disciplines yeah and they bring something different. Everyone brings their own flavor. You know, like I brought a very technical style of design. And, and for me, systems thinking was really easy. I was like, why? This is, this is the easy stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but put me in Photoshop in the early days and I was, I was sweating, you know. Sure. And so what I find is that a lot of the, the junior designers I'm working with, many of them have come from interesting pathways. They bring a really unique flavor. But those design fundamentals are, are what they need to work on. Yeah. And so that's where they've, you know, they've got to go to work on those things. Hmm. Okay, so then from Deloitte, what, where'd, you, where'd you jump to next? From Deloitte, uh, I was traveling around the country, you know, doing the Deloitte thing and flying in and out. Um, and that was an interesting lifestyle for a time. And then I got really tired of that. Yeah. And so I actually took a position in, in Adelaide um, for only about a year and a bit at a small kind of payroll company that was looking to really innovate in the payroll space kind of around the time Zero was also working there. And, I mean, for me, it was an opportunity to be the first design hire. And I was able to, you know, actually like go into a into an organization where design wasn't established, and, yeah. and I had to actually explain why we need to do this and the value of it. Um, and that's, I mean, a lot of businesses are in that place. And I think mm. it was a really, I had worked in some places where design was sought after, where design was accepted, and people understood the value proposition a little more. So to come in and have people actually ask you like, why though? Why should we do this? That was, I mean, frustrating. Sure. But like, you become really good at explaining it to people uh, you become really good at selling that as a value add and you honestly learn to explain design as more than just the visual treatment and you have to get really good at, at showing them that many of the decisions up the up the tree in the business are design decisions you know yeah. and we always say like uh, I think I read the other day from Kim Goodwell it's like the biggest design decision in a, in a company is the business model because it drives sure. so many other things. And yeah. if that's not rooted in, in human-centered design, if that's not considering desirability from the, from the humans it's going to impact, then mm. how can we claim that many of the other kind of flow-on decisions are, are rooted in, in that? So Yeah, not going to be impacted. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I wanted to get here eventually, but we might as well jump into it now. And around sort of you know, design, zero is a good example of this, mm. I think. So um, you know, zero on paper doesn't do that much different than Myob or mm. MIB or whatever was before at QuickBooks. Um, but the experience, the, the, the experience as a, as a user was significantly better. So I think early adopters, I got on it quite early, especially people that were u- younger people that were used to a certain type of you know, GUI and just mm-hmm. ease of, of actually interfacing with the software were like, it's, it's a no-brainer. And also integrations, right? So like the, the APIs. Mm-hmm. So Marketplace, yeah. all of that uh, led to essentially the same, you know, and I imagine the conversations early days within sort of a you know Maya would have been sort of oh well, this, is, this cloud stuff's going to go away obviously the cloud came, came into mm-hmm. that too but I think now we see in the banking sector um, you know experiences on apps actually driving customers as opposed to uh, you know historical you know mm-hmm. financial stability or interest rates you yeah. know I think I think the younger generation under me would prefer to have a great app experience than care about what the interest rates are totally and I think what's interesting about 
Well, I was kind of, I guess I was, was I surprised or not? I, when I was researching going out into the field, so one of the first things I said when I, when I joined the payroll company, is like, I got to go talk to some payroll managers. Like, that's the first thing. And they were like, oh, why? Like, we, we, we can tell you everything you need to know about payroll. I was like, no, no, I want to go, I want to go sit in their chair and kind of like, look at, I don't really know that much about payroll. And so, you know, some kind of wrangling. And then I went out and then I met with many of the, the payroll managers that are on their client list in South Australia and, and Perth. And, um... I mean, it was truly the software they were using was was old school, you know. It's like the UIs were heavily, com- like, I mean, complex to the point where you were really not quite clear what you were looking at all the time. Yeah, sure. But when you would talk to them, these are people that are, were experts of their craft. You know, they'd worked in that role for, for 15, 20 years. They were custodians of all the institutional knowledge, and they knew those tools inside out. And so you kind of look at where Zero really, I mean, disrupted, to use that word, or I guess, or like moved into that space. It, it's actually very impressive because in some respects they there was an era where yes the tools were outdated but people were so you know in, yeah in those tools and they knew them inside out and there wasn't the desire to change honestly and so sometimes when we show them the new UI that wasn't the thing that really inspired them because hmm. they were kind of like I got to relearn this I mean I've been doing this for twenty years yeah. you know? but when you showed them the efficiencies and what the plugins might bring what I mean that's where people went oh oh it's kind of interesting so I always think it's very impressive that Zero did what they did because. The space was due for an update, mm. for sure. But it, what didn't mean that it was necessarily like a willing audience that was in every area. Some areas much more easier to move than others, but some of those deeply rooted in, in old school tech. It was entrenched. It was it, entrenched. It, it still the is. I think the, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, I saw some stats around, you know, the, the take up of, yeah, like mild in particular amongst sort of, you know, big, sort of, you know, the, the BHPs of the world, you know, they're still fairly entrenched. I, I suppose because they have, you know, these consultants or whatever it might be that, mm-hmm. um, I mean, yeah, that's that's interesting. I often wonder about what are the other bits of software that are, we just don't even know about because okay. we're not in those worlds, you know. And yeah. I, I bet there's many more like that. Yeah. Oh, I dive into a few things with clients. And you look at what they're running. It's like, I mean, it, it, it's funny though. It is that um, we understand this. Like I've been using this for 15 years. Like yeah, mm-hmm. it's 15 years old. It hasn't mm-hmm. been updated. But um, it's often yeah hard to get someone into that. So that, that's a good pivot into like what what is human centered design? So how, what does that mean to you? Hmm. I think it means a few things. I mean, I think if we are thinking about maybe popular frameworks that people are familiar with, we can start there. You mm-hmm. might look at like the IDEO design kit. Yep. And I think they kind of they have a very nicely done Venn diagram and there's kind of the three you know, circles and, and they talk about human, business and technology. And they say human, it's desirability. Do humans desire this? And technology, I guess, is, uh, is it feasible? And then for the business, is it viable? So, you know, the sweet spot is in the middle of the mix. But what they say innovation. is, you, you totally, yeah. But you got to start with the human side. You got If it's not desirable, people won't actually desire that. Should we really even be making it in the first place? And so they really say, that's, you know, we've got to meet all three. But it really starts with that. And I, when I really saw that illustrated, I was like, yeah, I like that kind of language. Mm. I think, though, as well, when we... When we talk about human-centered design, I mean, I don't know if you... Um, lately, I've been reading uh, Ruin by Design by Mike Montero. Okay, sure. Yeah, I love Mike. Fantastic book. Yeah. Really quite a provocative. I mean, that's Mike's style. Yeah. Uh, provocative book, but some amazing ideas in there and, and some really well-articulated statements around, you know, if you're a designer, your role first and foremost is as a human, you know? And if you're designing something that has a business model that you know it relies on wealth inequality to be profitable if it relies on social class divide to scale and grow if for the benefit of a particular subset of users you're actually potentially harming another subset of users in the name of growth 
you know, you've kind of failed at your primary role as a designer. Because first and foremost, you have to be a human. Um, and, I, and for me, that I always try and keep that in mind. Like, that's where we need to... I kind of get a little frustrated sometimes when we're user-centered design or customer-centered design. Sure. Yeah, I mean, when the minute we start calling them customers, we've forgotten the fact that maybe they're not. <laughs> maybe, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, so I, I kind of prefer that kind of human-centered. I've been really trying to shift my language lately because we've had many years of, of user-centered design. You know, yeah, but customer I'm really trying to shift my focus and lens and language to more of this kind of idea of human-centered design. And, and like we said before, acknowledging that some of the biggest decisions that actually impact uh, a business, for, you know, the biggest design decisions are what's the business model? You know, what are the partnership agreements? What are the content licensing? What's the revenue? You know, streams looking like sure. And many times those decisions were made without designer involvement. And by the time it reaches the designer's desk with a brief, and yes, they're working on the product experience, and that's not to devalue it, that's incredibly important. Sure. But there's this other kind of you know, collection of, of decision-making that maybe wasn't human-centered because there wasn't a designer in the room to advocate for that and to kind of advocate for the people that weren't able to be in the room, the, the, end, the end humans using the product. Uh, do you know Stephen Gates? No. Um, he works for InVision, um, oh, d- mm-hmm. designer. Oh, he's got a great podcast called The Crazy Ones. I spoke to him earlier in the years. A big advocate of. He thinks we're going through a golden age of design at the moment, where mm-hmm. you know designers are actually, whereas we've been sort of hidden behind the curtains mm-hmm. for, for many mm-hmm. years, actually, yeah, starting to get invited into to meetings mm-hmm. and, and areas of business that previously weren't thought of. You know, designers were the crazy people with their pens in the back room sketching stuff, as mm-hmm. opposed to actually um, helping manifest. The, Whatever it might be, a product, a, a, totally. a contract, um, and but, so I was talking about um, like design thinking with him. So we ha- we have a lot of these you know these these tools and buzzwords: design thinking, mm-hmm. design sprints, mm-hmm. I mean, Google, Agile, um, which are all great, but they sort of have the I suppose they're in the limelight, right? This is a thing now. I'm interested to think back. The dashboard's a good example, right? Like so, I would say mo- a lot of car dashboards have never had any human like real human engagement as opposed to the one person that designed it you know like a lot of them are poorly designed and, and seem to just copy what came before it historically in, in you know in production or you know whatever kind of manufacturing it is like what would that design process have looked like like is it something that used to be lacking as I suppose to get to the point of my question like design uh, design thinking has always kind of existed right like like iterating but is it is it coming to a sort of a, you know more of a forefront as designers where we're using it now? That's a very long question. I apologize. No, that's a great question. I mean, uh, let's let's preface it. I mean, I wasn't there, so I can speculate, but sure. let's speculate. That's mm. kind of fun. I mean, I remember back when at university there was this, you know, the, the, the class where we talked about um, the dashboard. They had a lab where honors students were actually working on submarine dashboards, I want to say, or cool. control panels, I guess you would call them. And a lot of that research was was based in ergonomics, uh, usability, mm. and kind of much more classical human factors, things like time of task completion, yeah, yeah, ease sure. of you know, Likert scales, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know when I work with, in the, in the brief times that I've worked on hardware products, I always love working with industrial designers because I feel like they... Mm. They bring an expertise around ergonomics and looking at the way people navigate space and objects and things like that. That really, we don't necessarily always flex those muscles in digital product design. You know, and mm. I think I'm always inspired when I see the you know, industrial sketches and things like that. And they're talking about 
how people will hold a certain thing or sit in a certain chair and things like that. And so I do wonder, I suspect that industrial designers may have been, if there wasn't a dedicated usability professional, no, you, maybe the industrial right. designers were the, the flag bearers for that, and, and at least their focus may have been on, on ergonomics and then balancing that, I guess, with, with function and style and, and the materials of the time and the cost. I imagine cost was always a just such a, a strong yeah. influencer yeah, back it, then. It would have been because right. often now we're, we're pushing back against cost, right? And sometimes the cost is financial, but sometimes it's engineering hours. Mm-hmm. It's uh, perceived future maintenance. Um, there's always a cost to the design decisions that we're, yeah. we're trying to you know, get in place. And I suppose thinking about, looping back to some of those, you know, those uh, frameworks I talked about, in a non-agile environment, which a lot of car manufacturing historically was, mm-hmm. moving a button you know, three inches is probably a pretty bloody expensive, uh, well, it's very expensive, very expensive yeah. um, exercise. So um, you know, if, if, you haven't, if you haven't gone through that process of iterating at a very early like, lo-fi prototype stage mm-hmm. and, and getting user feedback, then really you go to production with probably what a couple of, uh, yeah, let, let, let's say, um, uh, industrial designers have, have thought up. And you know, then it gets to market and all of a sudden you know, the, the volume button's on the wrong side or whatever it might be. And I wonder, that's such a good point. I like that story. And I also, I mean, you have to think back then, would anyone have even known? Yeah. Like, would they have had the feedback channels to even Ooh. gather the feedback that the button's in the wrong place or... I don't know. I just, I mean, they're probably just as there wasn't maybe as strong an influence from, from, I feel like there must have been designers, but you know, but let's say it wasn't as strong as it is now. Mm. I suspect also on the, on the other side of that, it means the feedback channels weren't there and they yeah. weren't maybe the posting, but I don't know. I mean, that would be a great question to ask someone yeah, that worked yeah, in that time because I feel like there's a lot to learn there. Yeah. Uh, I know. I mean, like you said, once you, once you put that into place, that's it for that car yeah. or <laughs> until the next model. You know? Yeah, that's right. We were talking about, uh, touched on this yesterday with, um, yeah, interior design um, and architecture, like airports, the public spaces, mm. you know, it's a really interesting design constraints. And I think I had that realization know, years ago when you sort of, you know, every, everything is design, right? Mm-hmm. Literally mm-hmm. everything. So like, there's so much thought that has to go into a space or a product. And um, the process of that is, is so interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, coming back to that the human focus what are the, some of the things you do so we haven't even touched on this so you're working at Google now we got yes. h- halfway through the podcast <laughs> we brought it in um, what are some of the things that, that you see that um, you know coming into your world at Google mm, good question so one of the I mean I think just something you, you talked about then so you know when you talk to landscape designers or architects you know I think they, they talk about um, they really look at the way that people move through a space and the way they utilize a space, you know, and they can't just design the building and then sit back and launch it and wait to see. They're kind of trying to anticipate how will people move through the space, yeah. you know, and, and so at, at YouTube, I was looking at YouTube last year and uh, I worked in the, in the VR, AR area and we did a lot of thinking about ergonomics and how will people move through a room when they're watching a, a 360 video mm. will they actually try and jump around and explore it or will they sit very still on the couch and just kind of swivel their head and and so it led me down a path of looking at who in in vr was actually exploring this use of space and there is a, a very talented creative technologist i'll call them i think called blink pop shift okay and they were publishing and it's always stressful on podcasts that you get the name wrong <laughs> i hope they forgive me um and they published some thinking around they were looking at the future of offices within vr mm. and how people if they were to have to exist in this headset for i don't know 10 12 hours a day yeah 
what does that mean? And, and what kind of desk would you have? And what kind of chair would you have? And, yeah. and the last time I saw their research, they were talking about um, yoga wedges. Yeah. And like actually you would most likely be on the floor in mm. a very comfortable position and kind of foam wedges would prop you into a comfortable you know, spot. Yeah, yeah. And they were saying that their research had taken them to speak to dancers Hmm. yoga instructors and martial artists was the other one cool. and they said these are people that move through spaces with such intentionality mm. they said many of us and once I heard this I couldn't unhear it and I was like oh boy you know when we move even at this conference we're here today we're moving through chairs and alleyways and tables and you know and we're often on autopilot yep. you know Yeah. and you can kind of sometimes you can spot martial artists I did martial arts for many years and you can spot martial artists because they walk just a little bit more you see them kind of dodging like this. They never bump into people, you know. And mm. I think that's such a key, that was such a great insight to talk to those people. And you think about dancers and they have choreographers, you know, and they have such an intentionality and such a deliberate use of their body within a space. Yeah. I just think that's such a fascinating area to think about the design of, of ergonomics for, for, for those users and how you can bring some of that thinking, you know, to every day. And it's so disparate from you know where you started out, but it it, ma- it makes sense, right? To bring totally, this. totally. What, what yeah. did you What did you study? What martial arts? Uh, I did karate. Karate, yeah. The, cool. uh, Adelaide Academy of uh, of Karate. Yeah, in, nice. Uh, near Campbelltown, I think. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, def- you definitely can notice. I think it's a, you know, an awareness of your body and a certain level of mindfulness. I think too, and, and discipline that mm-hmm. that comes through people that have studied martial arts or any kind of discipline like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what are you working on now uh, within uh, within Google? So for the last, um, I guess it's almost two years, I was, I was working at YouTube in, in the VR, AR space. And you know, really, you know, VR kind of was, had its moment and AR was really interesting and, and sort of really explored a lot of, I mean, the talk today on virtual beings and VTubers, so I got to travel a lot and explore some really amazing stuff. And in my own kind of personal reflection, as we kind of mentioned before, I was really starting to think about, you know, where did I want to have impact? And, and obviously the tech landscape is changing, you know, I mean... I think um, I heard, a, uh, again, I'm not very good with names, but I heard an amazing podcast the other day and they talked about this concept of tech chauvinism, you know, okay. technology always being the, the right solution. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. I started to think a lot about that and my role within that and, and also living in a, in a geography where that is often, you know, tech is front of mind for us often mm-hmm. is the solution. And so I started thinking about human-centered design a lot. It's been on top of my mind. And, and also thinking about, you know, what influence was I able to have, uh, you know, at, at Google and in the field of design? And what did I want to work on? You know, what did I want to impact? And, uh, you know, I really got present to that idea that more and more, I think, of the decisions that impact people are happening sometimes outside of the purview of, of classical UX. Sure. And, you know, we've come a long way. Don't get me wrong. We've mentioned that, you know, just before. But... I think it was actually the Envision uh, Design Maturity report oh, yes, they yeah. released. They did yes, kind of talk about, you know, the most mature companies are looking now at strategic use of design, mm-hmm. design strategy. And so an opportunity actually came up within Google to work in design strategy. Cool. And that was on a team, and the team lead for that is Golden Krishna, who was uh, the author of uh, The Best UI is No UI. Okay, it's yeah, one of my sure. favorite books. And mm. so I was like, oh, wow, like the opportunity to, to work with him and, and work on design strategy and, and try and, you know, influence some of those decisions that are being made maybe before you know it lands on on the designer's desk and so yeah now i work in in a design strategy team and we work on on practical but ambitious product strategies at google particularly in the area of ecosystems and platforms okay 
and I mean, as you can imagine, there's not much more I can say about it. Yeah, but sure. it's great. I mean, you know, we, we really work with, with a bunch of people all over the organization, and the great thing is we work on many projects, and we get to see lots of different parts of Google. We get to see how lots of different teams work and different design teams work, and um, really just get a sense of the different challenges, but also the very common challenges that everyone's kind of grappling with at the moment. Uh, do you, do you enjoy living over there and working in that kind of environment? I imagine you know, coming from Adelaide and you know, it is a different world over in, in SF. And, you're, and you're, like mm. you said, you, you're kind of in the epicenter, right? So mm. there's, a, there's a lot going on around you. Do you feel that energy? Oh, yeah. You really feel the energy. But, you know, I mean, you feel it and it's a balance. And there's pros and cons to that energy. And I would say, you know, you're surrounded by people that are very uh, career-oriented. You know, and, and tech is obviously dominates the discussion over there a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a city where everyone's up to something, you know? Everybody's busy, everyone's working on their job, everyone's working on their side hustle. Mm. And, um, you know, when I talk to um, uh, different designers and we get together, you know, there is a conversation about, I'm kind of tired, you know? Yeah. People say, like, I don't want to do another podcast, I don't want to do... I mean, there, I think that, that energy also takes a toll, you know? And I think um, we've heard some great talks today. We even heard a great talk on, on building resilience as a a founder and I think that's becoming increasingly important and I think as when you live in kind of hectic places like San Francisco and there's a lot of that energy you have to kind of protect yourself a little bit and kind of uh, make sure you're working on your resilience and kind of your your self-wellness and that kind of thing because it can take its toll when you're you're constantly go 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 you know it's uh, that's a challenge I think to manage that did you hear Penny Lacasso talk and Big Kindred Um, I, I spoke to her earlier but um, oh no! I you know I'm was, so no, mad she, because my group went and then everyone came out and said, "Oh my god, that was so good!" And so I have to watch the live stream. She's talking about you know busyness and, yes, and about that's right. you know intentionally needing to adapt and make space for ourselves mm-hmm. these days because mm-hmm. you know driven people like yourself, you you know you can keep yourself busy 24 mm-hmm. seven if you need to, but often it does come with burnout at the end of it. And mm-hmm. you hear about that a lot, obviously in high pressure places like yep. like the valley. Um, but anyway, really, I mean, I think, I think just in common day to day, we're, we're so, you know, our tension is so divided between so much. So mm-hmm. it's a, yeah, it's an interesting landscape. I think it's a tough one. And I think, um, what do I think about that? I think that's going to be a challenge increasingly. And I think, you know, there's been many discussions about switching off and, you know, strategies for that. And I think that's, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's just, that's learning to exist within this very busy and noisy world mm. will... Actually, increasingly, be probably a very valuable and worthwhile skill. I think so. I'm just going to find what her, her word is. Yeah, let's do that. There was another talk today that talked about we've got an increase in distractions and, a, and, and it's harder and harder to focus and it's the perfect storm brewing for this kind of like sense of yeah. overwhelm. So it doesn't necessarily, I don't think it needs, it, there's, no, there's no prescriptive measure to it. It's not like mm. you need to become a vegan or you yes. need, you need mm-hmm. to uh, turn off the television. A bit. Um, so she calls it a intentional adaptability so so, mm. so having some intent and, and making conscious ch- choices in your life to, to change something for, for, for the good or for the different mm-hmm. to, to test it and going through that. That, that process so that might be switching off or it might be you know, spending time with your kids between X and Z but actually trying to take back some of your own you know mm. selfishly as, as a human for, for the good of you, you know, people around you and the community because mm. I think we can just get caught in yeah it's kind of a manic race towards I love that. That stuff's interesting. And I I think, you know, the big thing that I would say, I really like that. And I would say, you know, when you do, when we have a, when we 
trip and fall at that. We have a kind of a, yeah. a breakdown. It's just to say, okay, like that's fine, you know. Didn't work. Had to crunch to nine, worked late or whatever, and then you just kind of, like you said, you get back to the intentionality of who am I trying to be and yeah. the lifestyle I'm trying to live, and then you just pick yourself back up and get back in alignment with that. And I think. Yeah, that's one of the things they say about you know trying to break a habit is you, you can't mm. be so hard on yourself, right? Like if you, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not drink for. 12 weeks and you have one drink it's like oh you just you know well, that's a good example you just need to get back on right you just, so um yeah talking about uh user experience i love your website oh thanks very much but that yeah. that's a good example of you know the, the best ui is no ui i mean there is ui but it's so simple and so engaging mm-hmm. like it, re- it really makes you want to click through and read everything mm-hmm. i love I, um, that i mean I'll, i should give uh some credit there was actually an author uh who was a uh, quite a i forget i think he's from new york uh, anyway, he was an author, and he had a very he had the he had the idea first. I, I was going to ask if it was the original or not. No, it, I mean, and, and actually, you know, what was interesting is there was a time where, and I kind of grappled with that actually because I had the idea and I started building it, and then I stumbled upon this person's website. And I was like, oh no, that, that's always the worst, right? And I was like, maybe I'd seen it before, and I was kind of subconsciously influenced. But um, there were a lot of copycats uh, when yeah, his website first came out, yeah. and they got you know cancel culture and kind of canceled online. It was some digital agencies actually. Yeah, right. And so I made sure, you know, I, I wanted to, to put my own spin on this one and, and I'm actually working on the next version and it really departs a little bit more from, from where his original was at. But in the, in the, if you go to inspect the source, you know, mm. there's some hidden Easter eggs in there and I really give him a shout out. I'm like, oh, yeah, really? this guy yeah, got nice. there first, like, so please don't <laughs> cancel me. Um, but I mean, I just loved it as an idea because it really spoke to what I was trying to get across. Um, and I really, I don't know, I, I wouldn't, for those that want to visit the, the, yeah, the URL, dev.in, so it's really just Devon. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't advise on this kind of design for, for starting out your career. Probably better to showcase your, your sure. skills a little more. But they reached a point where I, this is kind of like the statement I wanted to make, you know, and I, I, I love the progressive disclosure of it. And, you know, I think actually someone tweeted about it last week and, and someone said, you know, I wouldn't advise this website. And something. I said, no, neither would I, you know. But what's been really interesting for me is that the number of recruiters that actually mention it in email, like mm-hmm. a cold email sometimes from people, and they say, you know, I didn't really think I would click through the whole thing. And then I clicked through the whole thing, and they yeah. really enjoyed it. I mean, if that's kind of if people can have a fun little moment in their day, kind mm-hmm. of clicking through your design portfolio, then that's pretty cool. But it's so simple, and I think that yeah, like I I talk a lot about the need to go back to simplicity on the web because mm-hmm. I think that you know we, we often just kind of try and cram out you know the, the interface with as much as possible, mm-hmm. whereas you know really well you just obfuscated it. Obs- I never pronounce that word. You've got rid of everything that's not necessary and mm-hmm. just gone to, to the core of it. And, yeah. And it, and it actually makes it more engaging. I tried to think if you were uh, a recruiter, I guess I was thinking in mind, or someone that was really interested to learn more about my professional career, I, I tried to think about what information would you need in what order and, and really, and you know, as a progressive disclosure, as a, as a, as a principle. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of came through, which was great. Um, what did you say just before there? You said something smart, and I wanted to comment on it. It's like, ah, that was so good. It's gone. Hey, for uh, everybody listening, it's at five thirty now, and we've uh, it's been a, it's been a long day for everybody. Oh, yeah. So uh, it, is, it is almost uh, beer o'clock. I'm not, I'm not penny. I haven't done the uh, the, the alcohol free month yet. So uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, I wanted to have a quick chat about decentralized web, but maybe maybe we don't need to go into that now. I think it's uh, it's probably, probably a rab- topic, rabbit hole. But, you know, the thing I'll say, the only thing I'll say about, it, I mean, there's been a lot of great. Decentralized. I was kind of really getting into decentralized tech, and I still am very 
interested in it. And I feel like I hadn't been in the conversation for maybe a couple of months as I'd been head down on some other stuff. And then at this conference, there's been a number of, of great talks and workshops in the blockchain stream. Yeah. And wow, the conversation's really progressed. And I was, you know, just standing in some circles today listening. And I was like, I got some catch up to play here. It's really, things are happening. And, but I mean, I think the thing that I, the reason I'll always be a proponent for decentralized tech is whenever I, I mean, I'm hosting my, my website on Beaker Browser and kind of using, you know, trying to host it decentralized and play around with that. And, and some of the websites I've seen, it really feels like old web, you know. I, it feels like, I'm just maybe showing my age, but there was that time on the internet where things were just a little more simple. And, like, I've seen a lot of posts lately where people are kind of waxing nostalgic about old web. And, yeah. you know, it's a very controversial <laughs> topic, but there was kind of that free-spiritedness to it. Mm. We obviously sacrificed a lot of things like accessibility and, and access, and so you know, it wasn't a perfect thing, but there definitely was that, I don't know, there was just an energy around it that I kind of really enjoyed, and I think that I see some of that spark and that ideas in the new decentralized teams, and when people are talking about their visions for decentralized apps or decentralized web experiments or decentralized, you know, what role operating systems will play or digital systems will play, like... They got that same kind of energy going mm. on, which I love. It kind of gets you fired up to think about things. So, I suppose since we have delved into it now, like in, in terms of people that don't understand, so the decentralized web we're talking about, like more of a peer-to-peer style network. So r- rather than um, you know a web existing on a server in a in a physical location in one spot, um, actually decentralizing that data across networks is that is that, is that a high level understanding of that's great mm. for 530 that's yeah. pretty good i mean the thing i love about that you think about like beaker browser all these decentralized web experiments it's like someone likes your website enough to want to host it cool yeah that's right i think that's such a great mm. like when we talk about engagement and likes and all this kind of stuff like what a great metric of engagement mm. that feels a little less slimy like this is great i want people to hear this voice Mm. I'm going to amplify it by keeping this little tower running or however they want to do it. I kind of like that. I mean, that's and, and there was an element, and there still is, obviously, but going back to the, you know, like uh, bulletin board days, yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. like pre-sort of uh, modern web as we know it here now, there, there was, it was very community focused. And, sure, uh, and the yeah. early web was, and it, and it still is to a certain extent, but the, the way we interact with it now, it's, it's, it's much more passive and mm-hmm. it, it's less of that back and forth. Whereas I think historically it was much more about interaction and, yeah. and sharing. And we probably had to work a little harder, but I guess we got yeah. that out of it. I mean, I, I just thinking now about like WinMX and mm. Napster and yeah, like yeah. The kind of peer-to-peer sharing, you know, and like there was this sense of like, you got to keep this person online because we need access to yeah. their albums. And all that. I mean, there was that yeah. real community in a, in a different sense. I mean, we have great communities now, but there was certainly, yeah. So I used um, SoulSeek and Audio Galaxy was oh, another good one, like peer-to-peer. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, no, you would I actually formed some like, you know, online interesting relationship. You know, one, I found a lot of music, mm. but two, yeah, well, if you found someone with a good collection, you like get in the chat and sort of, you know, oh yeah, is it alright if I can? And and you would actually sort of ask almost permission, permission yeah. to steal music, but you know, but yeah. <laughs> and especially music. in Australia, the the internet was so bad back then. You really you had to keep them on the line. Oh, yeah, like you were trying yeah. to think up conversation starters <laughs> to keep this person kind of entertained oh, while man. you covered their stuff. <laughs> someone had a good connection, you would be around there getting uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> getting MP3s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is a bit of nostalgia looking back on that. You mentioned accessibility. I think there was actually, you know, the sort of the start of web 2.0, 2005 kind of year. I think almost there was a more of a focus on accessibility then. So you know, Zeldman and the, and the like sort of really thinking about adaptive design as opposed to, I suppose, responsive design and, and thinking about, well, how is the web, you know, going to, and this is probably pre, you know, really pre-small screen sizes, but I think there was more thought about it now. I think a lot of design, a lot of studios and web designers, yeah, they go responsive, but it's not, it doesn't have that human-centered approach, right? It doesn't have, 
it, yes, it may work across different browsers, but are you thinking about how different people are going to interact with this stuff? So I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. Oh, yeah. I mean, and admittedly, I'm a little bit out of touch because at Google we have such rigorous accessibility That's guidelines great. internally. Yeah. I mean, like I'd never seen before. And mm. I was really, I mean, I was amazed to see that. I was so happy. I, but I remember working before I, I went to Google and like trying to just decipher the WCAG guidelines yeah. and like, you know, I was a big advocate for it even back. I mean, I annoyed a lot of engineers in my time, yeah. like making them make <laughs> updates and stuff, you know, I'm sorry. But uh, it was working. That's what you had to do. You had to kind of be like a thorn in their side a little bit and, um, and just kind of express why that was important. But I do remember like really struggling. And actually there was a, someone made a great project. I'm sure it's still around and it was called like WCAG, okay. you know, like W-H-C-A-G or something. And it was basically just like a layman's definition of how to interpret some of these guidelines. Yeah, cool. And I just think that's such a fascinating thing that the, and maybe this has improved. And like I said, you, know, you can at me if I'm wrong yeah. about this. But um, the, the guidelines spec that was meant to inform all this stuff was so difficult to use yeah. and decipher yeah. that people were just ignoring it. I mean, it failed at its first kind of job, yeah, you know. It's, and yeah, that's not, interesting. That's, no, it's not trying to like blame anyone over that but yeah. I think that was just that was the maturity and you know I think it's probably a lot better now and then you know what I loved is that the community was like no we care about this we're going to solve it like yeah. I'm going to read through every WCAG guideline work out what that means and put it into layman's and give an example and someone just did that and they didn't that's charge right. for it yeah, that's they could charge a lot of money yeah, and then shared I it. love that it's great you know? yeah that spirit that spirit is brilliant totally mm. Well, I think we uh, we should wrap it up now. If people want to find you, if you want to show your website again. Uh, yeah, so you can go to, uh, it's just Devon, but it's D-E-V dot I-N. I highly uh, recommend it. Yeah, go check it out. Simple but uh, very engaging. Mm-hmm. And check the, uh, there's some uh, some secrets in the inspect source there for oh, those nice. that are kind of curious. And uh, across social, Twitter? Uh, Devon Mancuso at for everything, um, Twitter. Uh, that's probably the main one if you're going to find me but you know everything's on the dev.in so always happy to chat shoot me an email cool oh it's great to see an Adelaide boy back in town for a few days happy to be here always welcome back beautiful oh cheers mate great thanks Sam thanks hey it's Sam here again thanks so much for your time Devin thanks so much to South Start for having us down and arranging the chat I was actually lucky enough to catch up with Devin uh, in Melbourne last week at Pause Fest as well. Good to see you again, mate. And uh, hopefully next time you're in Adelaide, please do say good day. If you're interested in more about design thinking, human-centered design, user experience design, you can dive back into um, a lot of our podcasts. I recommend listening to our episode with Stephen Gates from InVision. We jumped into some similar topics. I really enjoyed that one. And as always, if you did enjoy the podcast, Please do review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and share it with somebody in your circle who you might think will enjoy it. Until next time, Sam signing out.